here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our morning together. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Um, we do pray, Lord, that you help us to think well upon your text so that we may be those who are transformed with renewed minds, that we may live pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were in that section in the book of Proverbs, we we're in chapter 1, where we were talking about the enticement of the evildoer. And remember, the wisdom came from the parents and assumed was that they had godly wisdom to give to their child. And the wisdom that was given was to stay away from the enticements of the evildoers, those who want to shed innocent blood and to steal, and to listen to the parents. Well, we left off on this slide. I'm going to read it to you, and we'll continue from here. Verses 10 through 14, notice it says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. Now, remember I said in the red, I'll pull up my pointer again. In the red, we have our protasis, the if. Hey, son, if they entice you with this, then you have the apotasis, don't believe them, don't consent, don't go after it. So protasis, if, apotasis, then, implied. That's the structure of it. So from verse 11 all the way through verse 14, you have the protasis. That is, if they entice you saying this, if they entice you saying that, if they entice you saying this, and then we're going to get to verse 15 through 18, it'll be the apotasis. Don't do it, don't follow them, don't listen to them. That's how Solomon structured this section. Now, one thing I didn't point out last time is notice in verse 13 through 14, the promise of the evildoer is notice in verse 13, we will find all kinds of precious wealth, we will fill our houses with spoil. So notice the lack of work ethic. We're not going to have wealth due to working and contributing to society, but it's going to be the quick route through taking from others who have worked. But I love this verse 14. Notice the promise. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. So says the one scheming criminal to the rest of them. As if he's to be believed, right? Yeah, join with us. We'll all share the... The loot, right? Yeah, Brian. Yes. Oh, Carly's coming. We, we kind of finished on this last week, and I was yep. thinking about this this week, is that God has put such a emphasis on families and, and yeah. mothers and fathers. And with the breakdown of that in our society, we, we then saw the... Uh, a proliferation of gangs and stuff like that. So people do get enticed for some other form of family structure, and then all of this is the result. Amen. Well said. Yeah, I think the most under-taught verse is, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Um, out of 1 Thessalonians. Is it 1 Thessalonians 3, if I remember correctly? Um, think about the man who doesn't support his family is worse than an unbeliever. 
You know, we see that in First Timothy. So you see this work ethic, and Bob has talked about this in some of his Sunday schools. The Protestant work ethic was part and parcel to America, and that's being rejected. It's now get everything you can as quickly as you can. And that's why I think this is such an apropos section. Part of the biblical worldview is that you contribute to society by using whatever vocation you have, and you earn a living in a way that's pleasing to God. But, and you get good at it, exactly. And so no matter what job you have, it's always honoring to God. It doesn't matter how low or how high. Having a job is honoring to God. He loves the working man and woman. He loves that because that's honoring him. But when you're trying to take people's possessions immorally and illegally, that's evil. And so there we see the promise, ironically, in verse 14 from the hoodlums that, hey, if you join us hoodlums, we'll be be sure to share our profits with you. Well, that's probably not going to happen, isn't it? Yeah, the state of California, they're experimenting with a new minimum wage. You hear about that? The brilliant yeah. folks in California. Everybody gets this minimum wage or anybody that signs up for it. Oh, okay. Sure, yeah. Yep. That, um, that's always worked well. Yeah. yeah. One, of the, one of the problems with that, um, just historically, is if you do pay the person minimum wage, let's say $15 an hour, Well, that means every person who's making $15 an hour has to pay for all the other people who are making $15 per hour. And all of a sudden, your cheeseburger at McDonald's is going to be $21.34, right? Yeah, but this thing is for people that don't work. Oh, it's for those who don't work. Yeah, if you don't want to work, it doesn't matter. You just sign up for it, and you'll get X number of dollars per month. You know, they're just like, hey, we'll just give you a living wage. We don't care. You don't have to work for it. Wow, yeah. That's not part of a biblical worldview. And again, we have to see that. Yeah, Carly. What's the point of working then? If everyone gets the same money, what's the point? I'm sorry? What's the point of working if everyone gets the same money? Like, if you don't work, it's the same money people that do work. Yeah, part of the biblical worldview is that when you work, you're providing a service for others, right? And as you provide a service for others, they reward you so that you can purchase or do what you need to do to survive. So... Let's say you go to a mechanic, and the mechanic has a service that you need, and you purchase that service. Well, when he goes to the restaurant maybe that you're serving in, he needs that service. So you're both serving one another, and you're both getting benefit. But when people don't work, and they merely steal, then there's no benefit to society, and society breaks down. Does that make sense? Yeah, Bob. Um one thing that people don't understand really is Genesis. Yeah. Genesis, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God put Adam in the garden and he told him to till and keep it. Work it, right. So it wasn't like there's no work and then the fall happens and now we have work. Exactly. So work, therefore, is a result of the fall. But that's not what it says. Right, amen. The result of the fall was the thistles grow and there's this lack of productivity that has to be overcome by harder work, and there's more frustration. But Amen. work was there before the fall. Amen. Okay? And Sounds good. The idea that work is a curse is not biblical. That's right. And uh, that we can work and can be productive is part of being in the image of God. Amen. Because Jesus said, my father works until now, and I work. That's right. Okay, so at least 
the church needs to think biblically. I don't know if the world ever will, but Amen. we need to. Yeah, what was, um, what was destroyed, as it were, or marred by sin was the difficulty in work. And that's one of the things I think we see in the coming kingdom is that, yes, there's still going to be work for the people of God, but the, the thorns and the thistles will be removed. And we see that to a certain degree in the millennial kingdom. You'll see that the Dead Sea, for example, brings forth life. You'll see that there's going to be a restoration. The animals eventually won't kill anymore. There'll be no more death on God's holy mountain. The, the lion will lay down with the lamb or the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the child will be able to lead a cobra. So you see this removal of the curse, and it's not the removal of work, as Bob just said, but it's the removal of the dangers and the difficulties associated with work. Now, what I want to do is get back to this idea of the shedding of innocent blood. That's where we left off, and I said, this is important for our biblical worldview because killing of the innocent and the mistreatment of the innocent is something that God takes a very dim view of. And we learn that in Exodus 20, in the law, in Exodus 20, 13, the Lord says, you shall not murder. And remember, I made a distinction between murder and killing. I remember being on a jury trial, and I would hear people talk about, well, I could never be on a capital punishment case, because after all, it says, thou shall not kill. Well, that's not true. The Bible actually says, thou shall not murder. The term for murder in Hebrew is ratzak. Okay, now the term for killing is typically harag. Now, what's interesting about that is there's some overlap in the scriptures. You and I use terms interchangeably as well. Sometimes we'll use the term kill, and sometimes we'll use the term murder. But we still distinguish between killing and murder. Let me explain. You see a guy, um, an old movie where you have two boxers, and the trainer of the one boxer says, go out there and murder the bum. Well, he obviously doesn't mean murder literally. He means fight hard and win, right? Or you might see someone who was murdered, and the, the newspaper clipping will say they were killed at 7.32 p.m. Well, we know that that killing, if we have a moral, biblical worldview, that killing was immoral, it was murder. So what I'm trying to tell you is in the Bible, the same things can be said. Sometimes killing can be shorthand for murder, so you have to be able to distinguish between moral killing and immoral killing. That's what we have to do to have a coherent biblical worldview. So one of the passages I think that helps us understand the difference between killing and murder, as we mentioned last time, was Exodus 23.7. In Exodus 23.7, listen to what the law says. It says, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. What God prohibits is the killing of the innocent or the righteous. He does not prohibit. In fact, he commands the killing of murderers. Genesis 9, 6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. So isn't it interesting? The God who says thou shall not murder commands that you kill the one who murders. So obviously he's not telling you to do something immoral. So therefore, there has to be a distinction between murder and killing. Now, don't think this is just the old covenant. No, this is the new covenant as well. In fact, I'll come to a passage later in our studies here in 1 Peter 4, where Peter says, remember to the suffering Christians in Asia Minor, ensure, he says to one another, that none of you suffer as a thief or a murderer. 
So if we're going to suffer as Christians, it's to be for godliness, not because we're engaged in doing evil things. All right? Now, one thing I want to point out is when we look at the idea of murder and the fact that it's immoral, I want you to see that this is precisely why we have police officers in the military. The design of government is to restrain evil so that innocent aren't murdered, but in so doing, the police and the soldier, etc., may have to kill. And for the culture that you're going out, as you go out the door, this goes right over them. They can't figure it out. They cannot distinguish those categories. It's beyond them. They think all killing is murder and all murder is killing, and they're completely confused. Completely. Now, what I want to do is I want to address the issue of pacifism. Because some Christians, like Mennonites and others, Quakers, I think, they claim that you can never, ever be a soldier, a Marine, um, involved with the military or the police, because you have to kill. And after all, they believe the commandment says, thou shall not kill. What I'm going to show you is that is not true. Pacifism is not taught in the scriptures. What's taught in the scriptures is the prohibition against murder, killing of the innocent, but not killing of those who are evildoers. Okay, so turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 3.14. I'm going to have um, Brian read that for us. I'm sorry, Carly, we, we need the microphone up here, yeah. And I'll have, uh, Carly's going to bring that. Yeah, start in verse 8, so we'll do the context. Yeah, exactly. So everyone, as you're looking at your Bible, before uh, Brian reads, look at verse 8 first. That's going to be the context. The context is John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? He's the prophet who, according to Malachi, was to prepare the way straight for the Lord. And so he was the prophet that was to preach repentance, preparing people for the coming work of the Messiah. So as he's preaching repentance, what you're going to see is Brian reads verse 8. He says you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does it mean to bear fruit? It means you live it out in both doctrine and deed. So you don't just say, yeah, I'm sorry for my sin, but then keep on sinning. You live differently. So what you have in this section is different groups are going to come to John the Baptist and say, what does it look like for us to repent? So go ahead and read, Brian, verse 8, and then we'll go to verse 14. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Very good. And then to uh, verse... So here's in verse 14. Now, before you read this, what happens is different groups come to John the Baptist. Well, the group that comes to him here are soldiers. So here's the issue. Think about it. When Brian's going to read this, the issue is what does it look like to repent? And if there was ever an opportunity for the word of God to say, hey, you rascal soldiers, you guys can't be soldiers. After all, don't you know thou shall not kill? But you're going to see that's not what John the Baptist says. Listen carefully to what John the Baptist says to the soldiers. He says, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. There you go. There you go. So how does John the Baptist say that they should live? Does he say, hey, you guys, what what makes you think you can be soldiers and have to kill and use your sword? 
You have to stop doing that. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, don't extort money and be content with your wages. In other words, don't abuse your power. Be good soldiers. Soldiers who don't commit evil, but rather restrain it. That's the idea. This passage reminds me, do you remember in Acts chapter 1, where the disciples come to Jesus and they ask the question, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, Jesus had just taught on that for 40 days. He taught them about the kingdom. The reason I mention that passage is if there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to set the record straight and say, hey, why did you get this? where did you get the idea that the kingdom is coming to Israel? That was the opportunity for Jesus to correct the record. But he didn't. In the same way, in Luke 3, if there was ever an opportunity to correct the record and tell soldiers and police officers, you can't live that way. You can't be a Christian and be a soldier. You can't be a Christian and be a police officer. That was the passage to do it. But again, the issue is be a good soldier. Don't do evil, but restrain evil. That's really what's being stated. Yeah, Norm. Where it gets a little more complicated is when you start talking about, like, the just war theory. Sure. Where, where there are certain causes that, that like, like if you're a, a soldier in Germany at the time, what do you do then? Whereas, you know, the United States soldiers, they were, had a purpose and, and, and it was more of a righteous purpose. Yeah, absolutely. You can have whole movements that are immoral, that are doing evil, and Norm, that ties into, again, while we, we're, why we are supposed to have multiple governments. The idea behind Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, is that God ordains multiple governments, multiple borders, so that if one nation does become evil with their restrainers, with their soldiers, with their police officers, the others can pound them back into submission, hopefully keeping them from doing evil. That's precisely the problem when Babylon is built and you have a one-world government under the Antichrist, it will be unfettered evil all the time. And that's one of the problems is right today in our society, what you're starting to have because of the immorality of the government is you have those who are to restrain evil end up perpetrating it. And that's really what lawlessness looks like in the last system. If you were a soldier yeah. in Germany and Christian you were forced into the military, that would be a, a dilemma for you in Germany. Absolutely, it would be a moral dilemma. Absolutely. The moral dilemma is, do I support a regime that's trying to wipe out every Jew on the planet, that is trying to take possessions without cause? You know, you always hear, um, do you remember when you were a kid in school and you have to defend yourself from some other kid? The teacher would inevitably say, I, I've heard it, I don't care who started it. But at the end of the day, that's really the only moral question, is who started it. When Germany invades Poland, Poland is morally defending themselves. They are trying to restrain evil while the Germans are committing evil. And so at the end of the day, that's, and that's why I don't have this postmodern angst that some do. Um, I, there was one pastor, I won't mention him by name, but he was belittling the idea that we even went into Europe and invaded it. Because after all, we're sinners too. 
But I don't think we, have, we should become that postmodern where we can't see distinctions morally between two different societies. For example, were the soldiers who invaded on the Higgins craft as they invade and take Normandy at Omaha Beach and Sword and Juneau, etc., should we say, well, you know what, because they were swearing and cussing on the boat, we're not going to back them. Let's just let the Nazis have Germany. In other words, we can be so high and mighty in our ethical standards that we'd rather see all of Europe be a, you know, a death camp than say, hey, we're going to you know, not side with the GIs who are going to try to rid that. So that's one of the things where we have to have wisdom. And we have to say, you know what, there are some evils that have to be restrained using the military. And um, some of the evils that I think we've seen in our day were things like terrorism, Saddam Hussein. Um, Saddam Hussein had a, remember, a whole department of rape and torture in Kuwait City. Um, you remember there was an agreement after we kicked them out of Kuwait that they wouldn't shoot at our aircraft and they continued to do so. Do you remember that they had weapons of mass destruction? And there's been a lot of angst even about that. There was some discussion to say, well, no, they didn't have... Listen, ABC News reported two years ago that remember when ISIS was using chemical weapons? Where did they get it? Saddam Hussein's stockpile. So now to the left, you and I can't own a Daisy BB gun, but it was okay for Saddam Hussein to have sarin gas. Are you with me? So what I was willing to do is to stand and defend, no, this is an evildoer who should be taken out. And that should be part of the conservative platform. No, you don't allow an evildoer to go murder and pillage um, ad hoc everywhere he wants to go. You, you should restrain that. How many here would call the police if you were shot at on the way to a grocery store? I would. Well, when our airmen are flying and they're being shot at, do they not have the right to defend themselves? That's my question. No, no, you guys can't defend. We can defend ourselves. We can call for help, but not our airmen who are flying and patrolling and protecting us. So all of these are moral issues, and they require wisdom from the people of God. But it all stems from this. And if we can maintain that someone is doing evil, like Saddam Hussein, then our, our decision is, do we take him out using the military? Because we have the right to restrain evil, but sometimes exercising that right isn't the most prudent thing. There could be some say, yeah, but you could exercise that right. But when you take Saddam Hussein out, what is going to be left behind to fill the vacuum? That's a powerful argument. But at least we're in the same moral ball camp. Um, that's one of my concerns with the left in America is they just believe all killing, even when it's done by the military, is immoral. And we have to reject that. Yeah, Peter. Is this on? Okay. Um, in follow-up to norms, I had the same question. Yeah. So um, at the time of conscription, the truth is probably not known by these individuals. Sure. They're representing both sides of the faction. And so many times from a political standpoint, you know, we're looking back at what happened in yep. time, and we have that discernment. Yep. And so it, it's kind of tough for a guy who might think he's honoring his country. Absolutely. Uh, he's doing what he thought was right, and over time it's revealed that even his own country's undermining That's Christ right. Christian values. Absolutely. So I, I, I agree with Norm. Some of that's a dilemma, and it even is. on some of the political things that you mentioned, 
the truth probably is revealed more over time where, Absolutely. The, where discernment can be applied. Right. What I'm trying to do is get our heads around what are the real issues. We should restrain evil. And then is it prudent to do so or not? You're right. God is the one who ultimately judges the heart. And out of ignorance, people do things that they don't know is right or wrong. I'm sure God takes that into account. So, yeah, I'm not trying to claim that there aren't soldiers in the Wehrmacht that thought that they were doing righteous things and will be judged accordingly. I, I, what I'm just saying, though, is that there is evidence in every culture. You can see some evidence of what that government is about. And there's some, there's some corporate culpability there as well. But um, what I'm going to do is keep going, though, for the sake of time. I want you to think about this issue with the innocent person. It also extends to the way we treat animals and humans. Let me explain what I mean. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 21, verses 28 through 29. What I want us to think about is how we should be so in love, I I don't know how else to say it, with human beings made in the image of God, that we should go overboard in wanting to protect them. That's part and parcel to a biblical worldview. And it extends to the way we treat animals. In other words, if there are dangerous animals... They must be restrained so as not to hurt human beings made in the image of God. Let's look at what it says in Exodus 21, verse 28 through 29. Notice it says, If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. In other words, if this man who owned this ox knew that the ox was dangerous to human beings, and yet was so flippant with the lives of human beings made in the image of God that he allows the ox to gore someone, he's culpable. Remember, this comes from God. Now, how does that relate to the United States? Do you ever see the pets that some people have? Oh, yeah, my pet tiger got loose. Oh. And, and people side, they, they, they feel bad for the person with the pet tiger. If the pet tiger gets loose, it can kill people made in the image of God. You know, I, I'm a, I like dogs. I've got a little cocker spaniel. But if he gets a little owly or ornery, I can take it to him. Not so much with some of the dogs that I've seen. Look at some of the pit bulls, 130 pounds. They've got jaws like vice grips, and they're just let loose by the neighbor. Well, if he kills Billy, our next-door neighbor's boy, oh, well, well, that's just the way it goes. That's the flippancy that you see with some people and their pets. And we, again, having a biblical worldview, I think have to stand against that to say, no, um, you know, we've got to take human life very seriously. If there's animals that are threats... They need to be restrained. Yeah, Brian. um, We'll we'll get you on tape. So anything you say can and will be held against you. When when God put these laws, like we've just seen a few examples in Exodus, these were great deterrents to doing what you may be thinking that you might want to do. Absolutely. But now there's no deterrence. So 
people can logically, well, if I go and kill so-and-so, I, I might get 12 years and I could be out in six. So there's no deterrent anymore for the crime that's committed. And, and I think that's a reason why we see so much of this flourishing because, you know, there's, there's just nothing to, to stop people. Well said. I think you've got some wisdom there, absolutely. The, um, if you see the United States and how many states have gotten rid of the death penalty, they do it because they're confused over this issue. They say, well, we're killing and thou shalt not kill. Some think that. Others just don't like the government using the military to restrain. Um, they just don't like, they think that that's not the role of the government. Remember if you read or listen to the lyrics of John Lennon's song, where he says, imagine, the utopian view of the left is that you're going to have no need for weapons anymore. So what I want you to consider is what the left is really saying in Marxism is, do you remember in Isaiah when it says they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, no longer will the nations learn war? Marxists claim they will bring that about. You and I say, no, 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 Christ brings that about. That's really what the battle's about. It's an eschatological battle. Who's going to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks so that we no longer kill one another? Is it Christ or is it going to be ultimately human ability? And it's really a battle of works and grace. That's really what the battle's about. So you're right, the Marxists have this role for government to redistribute wealth rather than to restrain evil. And one of the reasons that's been done primarily in the United States is because the, the military has always been seen as something that would restrain them. How many remember in the 1980s? You had hearings on the CIA like every week. Every week I was a kid, I'd be in front of the TV, there was a hearing about the CIA. Do you know why there were so many hearings by the, about the CIA and what they were up to? Because they were going after communists. They were helping, for example, in Nicaragua, the Contras beat the Sandinistan Marxist government. But now that they're coming after you, there's going to be no hearings. And all of a sudden, the left loves the CIA. Are you with me? Why? Because they're coming after you. That's the issue. Now, no more hearings, nothing to see here. The CIA, everything to do is wonderful. When you and I said, yeah, go after the communists. We don't want Marxism to wreck the world. No, we have to, every other week there was a hearing. Got to see what the CIA is up to. They're evildoers according to the left. But now that they're going after you, nothing to see here. Yes, Eric. Yeah, getting back to the, you know, the uh, beating the sh uh, swords into plowshares yes. and all that. You know, we know that that is the millennial kingdom. Amen. But I will tell you what horrible shape the, the various Christian groups are in. I have a client who lives in England. And he is a, a kind of a liberal. He's a writer. And he has some property in the United States. So I still do his taxes. Not that we need to know all of that. But, but um, so I'm, I've been in touch with this guy over at least 10 years, more than that even. And he knows I've, I've, they've got a problem with Islam in England. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's these uh, no-go zones and things like that. Well, this friend of mine, client and friend, he sent me a book. 
uh, by, I think the guy's name was Madeiras, was the guy's last name. This guy's a big wheel. He works for the UN. He's supposedly a Christian. And I started reading this book, and I couldn't stand it. I, I had to put it down. And yeah. you, that's really something, because I'm willing to take my punishment and read <laughs> bad stuff. Right. But, but right away it was, you know, some people aren't willing yet to beat their swords into plowshares, and it was all of this, all of, we worship the same God and all of it. And so, in other words, a, a completely wrong eschatological understanding. Yes. And this is in the name of Christianity. Yes. It's a real problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialism in Christianity is where we're going to Christianize the planet and make it a righteous place so that Christ can just inherit the throne. It ties very nicely into Marxist dogma, yeah. Well, really, it goes back to the fall. Yeah, amen. Because Hegel, who's behind the whole idea that we're evolving into utopia and deity and whatever, he thought the fall was good. Adam fell up. Right. (laughs) Because that was the first step in evolving into ultimate deity. Amen. Now, the Bible says that when the serpent said to Eve, you'll not die, you'll be like God, the Bible sees that as a lie. In fact, the lie. Amen. But Hegel saw that as, well, this is your chance to start this process of moral and spiritual evolution. Right. And so, really, you have a denial of the fall. Yeah. A denial of the sin nature. And the, the idea that if you just let everybody become who they are in their essential being, all this goodness will come out. Right. <laughs> okay, and they literally do believe that. That's right. And so if you see someone who's doing really, really bad stuff, yeah, that's not a sign that they're evil. It's a sign that they've been harmed by somebody else. That's right. That's okay? right. So there's no such thing as an actual sinner. Yep, that's their view, isn't it? Right. right. And so then there's no need for redemption, no need for forgiveness, no need for the blood atonement, Yes. no need for Christ. But we just need to get this process going. Now, that was really the view of the Virgin Church. So I, I wrote a book about that. Absolutely. And uh, Jessica, by the way, was reading a book that somebody gave us. Highly, highly uh, promoted in churches, approving of Puritans. And yeah. by the way, I totally disagree with the Puritans. Absolutely. But the book was quoting Jürgen Moltmann. Yep, there you go. The first chapter of my book on Emergent is about Jürgen Moltmann. Yeah. Who took Hegel's philosophy, added the Trinity to it, he created a, ver- a Christian version of the Hegelian synthesis. That's right. So if we start with the idea that we're sinners and need a savior, we got a totally different idea. That's right. Well said, Bob. It reminds me of Saul Linsky. Somebody probably in here has probably read his book, Rules for Radicals. The foreword is a foreword where he dedicates the book to Lucifer. And the reason he does so is because he was the first radical. It, just as Bob is saying... Lucifer was elevated by Saul Linsky because he was the one who rebelled and started the progress going forward. Now, what's interesting is he was asked, Saul Linsky, and I'll come to you in a sec, Barb, sorry. Saul Linsky was asked in an interview in the 1970s where he would want to go if he died. 
Well, because he was an atheist, he says, well, he was mocking this. He says, I'd, I'd like to go to hell because I'd like to organize it. Remember, he was the community organizer. But the issue of Marxism is always a denial that the fall occurred and that there's a sin nature of man that needs to be restrained. All of that's being denied. Um, by the way, Hillary Clinton did her dissertation in Wesley on Saul Linsky. Uh, Barack Obama gave a message some years ago at the Fick Auditorium. He taught in Saul Linsky's classrooms. And that's why these are worldview issues that Christians have to have in their mind to say, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with the Bible. And so this is a religious issue. Um, what Bob is referring to is exactly right. The fall for the left is either non-existent or one that was progressive. We see it as one that not, what must be overcome, and it's going to be overcome by the grace and power of Christ alone. Yeah, Barb. Yeah, I think um, there's another problem. I, we, you know, we think a lot about the left, but also... Um, supposed Christians are, in fact, we kind of experienced that recently, um, who are politically active tend to be the seven mountain mandate types and the new apostolic reformation types, sure. which are two really heretical, evil concepts, um, and they're very involved in the Republican Party. So sure. we have yep. um, the left on one side with their Marxism and then supposed Christians who are pushing the kingdom now dominionist Yep. lie and right. it's very pervasive as we found out um and um very evil yeah absolutely yeah it's it's both parties they're inundated with falsehoods and the falsehoods bring real trouble to any land that's for sure um let me keep moving just for the sake of time i want to get to the next slide here and the idea here is the apotheosis now remember we had the apotheosis if they say this if they say this don't don't believe them now is the apotheosis now this is what we are to do or the child is to do if they listen to their parents. So now the mother and father are saying this, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Now notice that reference here in the red to the way. The term there in the way is the term derek in Hebrew, derek is probably the way they would say it. Now, that term has to do with a path. It has to do with the way that one is walking. So in the book of Proverbs, life is depicted as being on a path. And you're either on the path to salvation, you're on the path of the wise, or you're on the path of destruction, the path of the fool. And by default, every one of us, because we're born sinners, are placed on the path of destruction, the path of the fool, and we have to be taken off of that. But notice the phrase, in the way, the way of the sinner, the way of the scoffer, like we see in Psalm 1-1. In fact, I'll put that verse up. The way or the path of the evildoer is not to be followed here. Um, notice here, the way of the evildoer in verse 16 is that they run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. In other words, they're excited to do it. They do it at the drop of a hat. I was talking to the, the boys here this morning, our morning crew, and um, we were talking about an attack that happened recently. I don't know if it was last night or yesterday. How many saw where in Washington, D.C., there was a Pakistani man. He was uh, doing this Uber Eats where you call and you get a meal delivered to you. He was 66 years old. And a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old girl, they use a taser on him, and they tased him. And I, the part of the video that I saw was this man is on the outside of his car, and they're trying to steal it. Well, he, he's holding on to it, and they go driving off. They crash the car. It ends up on its side. He's killed in the crash. 
They're probably going 50 miles an hour down the road. They crash it. He goes flying off. He's dead. And this 13 and 15-year-old are like, well, where'd our cell phone go? And they're stepping over the dead body virtually of this dead Pakistani man. That's how little regard that they have for human life. That's the evildoer. They think nothing of human life. They're quick to shed innocent blood. That's who they are, and they must be avoided. How many have ever seen the show The First 48 Hours? It's about these detectives who try to find out what happened in a case, and they try to do so within the first 48 hours. Otherwise, the, the leads kind of go cold, and they often have unsolved cases. Well, inevitably, if they find the killer and he ends up confessing, it is amazing to watch their confessions. Yeah, I shot him uh, 16 times, stabbed him, kicked him, you know, sawed him to put him in the freezer. Then I got some Cocoa Krispies and I watched MacGyver. It's just, they talk about the murder of human beings as if it's just part of the normal part of life. There's no respect at all. It, it makes you gulp and say, wow, dear ones, that is a sad, sad thing. No, human beings made in the image of God must be protected, and we have to have that worldview, um, especially our children. I don't think anyone in here is at risk of wanting to join a, a roving gang of marauders going to steal things, but a lot of the children that are relatives, uh, friends perhaps, they're involved with organizations that think nothing of harming people made in the image of God. I remember watching a video not long ago, there was a bunch of people at a restaurant and a bunch of BLMers come shoot fireworks at them. Shooting fireworks at them. Or they get within your face and they demand that you swear allegiance to the cause and the implication is if you don't, we'll beat you up. And that's why last week when someone said, well, you know, not all people in BLM are really for that sort of thing. Well, it's like saying, well, yeah, not everybody that was part of the Nazi party wanted to round up the Jews. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's what the group is about. The same thing happens when you follow the evildoer. You can say, well, you know, I wasn't really interested in hurting anyone. I just wanted their gains. I wanted the money that came from them. If you're in solidarity with those who do evil, if you're walking in their way, God sees you as the problem. And so we have to help our young people say, no, you don't follow the evildoer's way. Don't be in solidarity, in corporate solidarity with those who do evil. Yes? Well, I'm not saying that this is what is happening right now, but in the Revelation 6, verse 3, when it talks about the second seal being broken and the conflict on earth, and how it was granted the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And down below it talks about how violent slaughter becomes commonplace. Absolutely. Those are the opening wars. That's what Jesus describes when you hear of wars and rumors of war. Um, remember, he talks about that in the Olivet Discourse. We're thinking of Matthew 24, verses 5 through 7, right in there. So in the opening phase of the 70th week of Daniel, you're going to have warfare that's so bad, it ends up leading to the death of a quarter of the Earth's uh, population. The reason why those function as signs, because we've always had warfare, is because they're so egregious. The warfare is going to be so bad, that's how they function as signs within that time period. But yeah, so... What we see, I think, Linda, is that the society is being conditioned to allow that sort of thing to happen. The moral categories are gone. We can't distinguish between murder and killing, between the innocent human being and the pit bull that has jaws that can tear people. There's no moral distinctions anymore that are being made. 
And so you're seeing the world set up for that type of that evil. Absolutely. But I don't think that that's occurring now. But you're right. I think it will. Absolutely. We're being set up for it. Yep. You, you got it. I'm sorry. Was there something else? Somebody, I thought I saw a hand, but I may be wrong. We're good? Well, let me show you a passage this kind of brought up to my, in my mind. Psalm 1.1. I just want you to see the connection to the path. It's the same term, derek. Derek. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path, literally the way, right, of the sinners, nor sit on the seat of the scoffers. In the seat of scoffers. Dear ones, why is that the case? Why is the blessed man one who's not going to follow after the way of the evildoer? Well, in Psalm 1-2, it tells us because his delight is on the law of the Lord. His delight is in the scriptures. His delight is to know the things of God. And so what we need to do for our younger generation is to teach them the word of God so that they have minds that are transformed. Remember in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The term transform there, metamorpho, literally means to undergo a metamorphosis, to have a change of the way you think. Yeah, Norm. To that point, uh, I think of Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. Yes. It talks about, uh, and these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. They will be like to the parents. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and they shall talk and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Wow. That's, that's how you nip this whole thing in the bud. Amen. Amen. Well said, Norm. Yes, teach them the word of God. And the word of God changes people. It converts. And yes, it's powerful to save and to change people. Absolutely. That's what keeps us uh, from being the same as the evildoer. Absolutely. Let me keep moving for the sake of time. I want to get through this and see if we can get into the next section here. Let's talk verses 17 through 18, how evildoers end up ambushing themselves that's part of godly wisdom coming from the parents. If you join with these evildoers trying to get gain either by stealing or extortion, what have you, it ends up being your own destruction. Listen to what Solomon wrote. He said, Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. Now, I want you to take note here of what you see in red where it says, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. What in the world does that mean? When I read that initially, it seems to me that what it's saying is that the bird will see the net and will fly away. That's what it seems to say to me. In other words, it's useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. Why? Because the bird's going to get away. Are you with me? And the implication of that in this text would be, well, that means the evildoer isn't going to be successful in harming the innocent. But that doesn't make any sense of the context. Let me share with you a better reading of the Hebrew. And I look for an English version, but here I'm going to cite a scholar named Dwayne Garrett. Dwayne Garrett was the one, I used his textbook when I was learning Hebrew. He's very gifted in the languages. And here's how he would render what you see in red. I think this is a far better understanding of what's being stated. This is probably, by the way, an idiomatic statement that they knew of. Proverbs 117, it says, In the eyes of a bird, the net is strewn with, with grain, implied, for no reason. In other words, what's actually being taught here is that the bird only sees the net, and it doesn't make any connection between, I'm sorry, it doesn't see the net, it sees only the food, 
and it pays no attention to the net and doesn't know when it goes to take the food, it's going to be trapped and killed. In the same way, the evildoer sees no connection between what they are doing, murdering the innocent, and the certain destruction that's going to come upon them. That's what's being stated there. Now, corroboration that that's the correct interpretation, notice verse 18, it says, but they lie in wait for their own blood. Well, that makes sense now because, yeah, they don't see any connection. Like the bird who says, I only see the bird seed. You're the bird. I don't see the net, even though the net's there. Going after the bird seed kills you. Going after the innocent person is going to kill you. And they don't even perceive it. That's what sin does. Sin brings people this evil doing, going after sordid gain, trying to harm people made in the image of God to steal their possessions, it ends up bringing destruction upon themselves. And what's interesting is sometimes this destruction doesn't happen here and now. How many know sometimes the evildoer gets away with it? Sometimes they do prosper. And the book of Proverbs affirms that. Generally speaking, generally, remember, the book of Proverbs is about generalities, and without having generalities, you can have no wisdom. Generally speaking, the law enforcement will restrain you, and you will suffer now. But even if you don't, let's say the law enforcement covers for you like they do certain politicians' sons and you get away with things, at the end of the day, you're going to have to answer to God. And the the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, it affirms these things. Remember, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, after all has been said and done, what's the point of everything? Everything is vanity except what? To fear God and keep his commandments. That's what it's about. Why? Because you're going to answer to him. So even if a criminal gets away with this during his days on earth or her days on earth, they won't get away with it indefinitely. And so that's why you have this conclusion in verse 19. The evildoers are really ambushing themselves. Proverbs 119, it says, So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence that takes away the life of its possessors. Those who want to live by doing evil, they will one day answer to God. One of the takeaways that I think we should come away from this section in Scripture is that, again, I don't think anyone here is being tempted to join a band of marauding thieves going around stealing and carjacking, etc. But I think it should reinvigorate the need to have our grandkids, if you have grandkids or children or neighbor kids, to get them the word of God. First and foremost, for conversion, for the forgiveness of sins, but also so that they may know the right way to live. That's what we have to do. The other thing I would say is what we learn from this section, again, afresh, I think, is that the role of government is to restrain evil. The only time violence is condoned if you think about it in the scripture, it's very simple, is to restrain those who are doing evil. That's when violence is condoned. So simply in your life, you can look and say, hey, is evil being done? Therefore, it should be restrained. But if someone hasn't done any evil and violence is being perpetrated against them, that's something that's evil. And that's why, again, in 1 Peter 4.15, Peter says, this is the new covenant. We're going from the old to the new now. This is what we're bound to. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Yes, we may suffer for the sake of Christ, but none of us should ever suffer because we're violating the law, as it were, 
doing those things that are truly evil. Okay, now with that, any, any more questions or comments on that? I might uh, introduce something. What I'm going to do is, because we have such great discussion and sometimes we're in between messages in Proverbs, I'm going to start doing some apologetics. In other words, if we finish early in Proverbs, I'm going to do some apologetics about Catholicism. And I was kind of tipped off on this by an issue that had come up with one of our parishioners. I won't mention the name Um, Not for his sake, but for the sake of those maybe listening. But the issue came up about the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I thought, you know, that would be an interesting thing. Just whenever we're between Proverbs, we'll just do a little apologetics lesson about how to refute different Catholic claims that you could maybe put in a notebook and maybe you put in a special Bible even and say, hey, you know what, this is a Bible dedicated to refuting Catholic error to help my friends and neighbors who are Catholic. So I want to do that. But first of all, let's get to our homework for next time. I want you to read, if you will, Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. And we're going to answer these questions. What is being personified? There's something... Remember personification is where something that's an inanimate object is made to sound like it's a person. The wind was like a roaring man who runs swiftly in the night. I, I'm terrible at poetry, but the idea is that the wind really isn't a man, but it's personified as a man. That, that's the idea. So there's something being personified in this section. What is it? If you could answer that. Oops, sorry. And then two, what is the main point of the pericope? Remember, that's not periscope. I'm not misspelling that. Pericope is a section of scripture that should be taught together. It's a unit of thought. So, by the way, if you're doing a Bible study, one of the things you can do is help line up the the pericope that should be taught. It's the common theme. In narrative, it's often where you have a common, there's one main idea in the pericope, and all the other subpoints would back that up. Okay, so sometimes if you're doing a Bible study, you cover too much. You have so many things, you can't get to it all. Well, that's because you're going beyond the pericope. So, in this pericope, what's the main point of it? Three, what risks are there in not heeding wisdom's voice? And number four, are there any examples from your life? I'd like to hear your examples. Now, with that, um, again, you have this handout. And, um, no, I'm sorry, I just meant the one that I've got right here. So everyone has that homework assignment. I'm going to hand this out to you so you have this with you, even if we, we can't um, cover it this time. I'll just introduce it to you. Oh, you're not going to really go through it? Then let's hold it. Oh, okay. Until you're going to do it. Okay, well, we'll hand it out next time. But what I want to do is just talk about a claim real quickly that the Catholics make, and that's the perpetual virginity of Mary. And we'll just cover this for just about five minutes. What's interesting is the Roman Catholic Church consistently tries to elevate Mary because they want Mary to be a co-redemptress, a co-mediator with Jesus Christ. And that's very troubling. And I want to, I'll delve into this issue next time. Listen to what it says. This is from their catechism. It says, The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a parthenos, the ever virgin, unquote. So this comes right from their catechism. 
And so within the magisterium of the Catholic Church, even all the way up to their papacy, they affirm that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never had any children. And again, the reason they want to do this is they want to try to claim that Mary is, in some sense, a co-mediator with Christ. Now, we don't have time to get into all of this, but let me just throw this out at you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. Right away, what I want to do is give you succinct things that you can tell your Catholic friends, neighbors, relatives that refutes this idea of the Virgin Mary being a perpetual virgin and also being a co-redeemer and savior with Christ. Notice this claim that there, she's a co-redemptress or mediatrix. 1 Timothy 2.5, what does it say? It says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, so how many mediators are there? Are there multiple mediators? No, there's one. There's one that we worship. It's the man Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting there Paul accentuates the fact that Christ Jesus is a man? Why? Because he has to represent us. First Adam brought a sin, death, and hell. Our first representative, our next representative can be our mediator. Why? Because he was really of us yet without sin. So he can really be our, our mediator. He can be our stand-in. And he knows what we've, what we've gone through. But notice also in that phrase, he's the man, but he's also Christ Jesus. What's inherent in the term Christ. Well, it's the Messiah. It's the anointed one, isn't it? And the Messiah was to be truly man and also truly God. So you have the implication of his deity in that title as well. Yeah? What would be the point? Why elevate? Yeah, well, sorry, we'll get you on there so I don't lose it. That's a very good question. Yeah, Eric, what would be their point of doing this, uh, deviating? Yeah, and again, that's, um, I think the major reason they do this is they always try to add something to Christ. Christ is never sufficient in Roman Catholicism. Uh, that's one of the issues that you see even in Asia Minor, where, for example, the book of Colossians is written, where, yes, they have Christ, but they also need the help of the angels. They need... They need, yeah, Christ isn't sufficient for all that we need. And so that's what you see all, time and time again in Roman Catholicism. Isn't it interesting? In Roman Catholicism, regeneration starts where? It starts at baptism. Okay? Now, to us, you're baptized because you've been regenerated. To them, baptism is regeneration. They believe in baptismal regeneration. It's a distortion of John 3. Remember in John 3, Jesus says, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is alluding to is Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, the idea of being regenerated was that of the spirit and water. That's the imagery in Ezekiel 36. So that's what Jesus is alluding to, but they take it as meaning this is a reference to baptism. It's not true. Now, why am I focusing on baptism? Because at baptism, regeneration happens to an infant, for example, and they're Right there, they're sinless. But as soon as they sin, as soon as they do so, they lose their salvation and they enter into the system within Roman Catholicism of works. A system of penance, a system where they can have help from the Virgin Mary, that she can be a co-mediatrix on their behalf. They can get meritorious works from the saints. 
uh, be, you can pray someone out of purgatory. As soon as you sin, you enter into a system where you're relegated to human works. But even at baptism, remember in John 3, when Jesus talks about being born again, I'm thinking of verse 9 and 10, or I'm sorry, verse 8 maybe, through 10. Remember Jesus says that being born again is like the wind. You can't control where the wind is going. He says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit, you can't control what he does. He's the third person of the Trinity. And he will regenerate those whom he will regenerate. You can't control it. But can you control baptism? Yes. So even at baptism, in Roman Catholic doctrine, it's something that humans do. And I think that's ultimately the reason, Peter, is they want to go to works right off the get-go. So Mary offers something that they can access that's certainly beyond Christ. Yes. There's one other thing. Yeah. Um, The other thing is that they have a really lowered view of marriage, uh, childbearing, and somehow being a person who's married and has children the man and the wife and children is lesser. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's why they got nuns who are quote, married to Christ. Right. Right. Yep. Okay. And they have priests, which is unbiblical because right. the Bible teaches priests of every believer yeah. who aren't to be married. Yeah. So that makes them more pious. That's right. But that's a lie. It is. It's a, and, and and the Bible honors marriage, and childbearing. Amen. Close with this. You're right, Bob. Um, Think about 1 Timothy 4, where what are part and parcel to the doctrine of demons but the forbidding of marriage? That's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does, and I think it's exactly what Bob is saying is, in some sense, they believe that if you're married, you're somehow lower than that which is without human relations. It's almost almost like a Gnostic thing, where something that's physical is always bad, and Something that's spiritual is always good. It's almost to that level where they denigrate the idea of marriage and those things. But we have to know that those are doctrines of demons. God never forbid marriage, and marriage is something that comes from him. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dan. I'll say it real fast. Um, the only thing about the, they like large families in marriage you know, uh, for the sole purpose, especially the traditional. They get more Catholics. Get more Catholics oh. and getting them into the, being a nun or a priest. They, sure. Well said, yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Well, with that, thanks, Dan, for contributing there, and Bob, and everyone. Thanks so much. I really enjoy our discussions together. Um, Let's pray and pray for Bob and the sermon and the rest of our day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our opportunity to come together and learn more about your word. I do pray for Bob today as he teaches. I pray that you'd you'd give us ears to hear, that we would be those who not only hear the word but also be doers of it, And I pray that you would help us to be conformed to the image of your Son through your teaching of the Scriptures today, Lord. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.